Open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 13. And you're going to be ready for us to start in verses 1 through 9. And I'm going to tell you to skip ahead to verses 10 through 17. And, uh, and also 34 and 35. And I'll explain that in just a minute. In just a moment. Uh, I've realized this week that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are smart people. And there are those who schedule themselves to preach the day after their sister's wedding. I'll let you decide which one I am. Uh, but many of you do know uh, my sister and uh, uh, Megan. She uh, was married last night her, to her husband now, Nathan. And, uh, and we rejoiced in that and, and celebrated in that. And, um, and I managed to wake up this morning. So that's good. That's been a long week for us and for my wife and, uh, and for our girls. So uh, just pray that the Lord helps us to rest uh, today and, uh, and to get caught up on that. We human beings are, are what I would call storied beings. We are, we are creatures of story. We tell stories all the time. Think back to the last maybe family reunion that you went to or time that you had neighbors over for dinner or barbecue or whatever. Odds are you probably told several stories about when you were kids or something that happened in your past. or what. Just most of the time we tell stories uh, just to remind us of things that have happened. Sometimes we tell stories to make jokes because those stories are funny. Uh, sometimes we tell stories to teach our children lessons that we learned through mistakes or hardship or other things so that they'll learn from them. We are storied beings we don't always just tell stories to be entertained, though, like in the movies or in plays. We, we do often tell stories to, to teach, to inform, to correct even sometimes. And in Scripture, the, the, there is no exception to that. In fact, we find Jesus very often telling stories to teach. And we call these stories that Jesus tells to teach parables. Parables are stories that teach spiritual realities. And in Matthew chapter 13, we're going to get a lot of them. The parables of Jesus, then, as we seek to understand them, seek to, to know them, should be rightly understood as Jesus intended them, and rightly applied by followers of Jesus, by we who are trusting in Him for salvation, so that we might grow closer to God in the character of our King. That's the point of the parables, and that's what we need to do with them. As we look at Matthew chapter 13, over the next uh, several weeks, we will be looking at many of these parables. And if we were looking at Matthew chapter 13 all at one big glance, uh, I, I would not take verses 10 through 17 sort of out of order uh, the way that, uh, from, from the way that we normally do. However, I am today because verses 10 through 17 give us the purpose of the parables in the midst of this parabolic discourse or discourse of parables here in Matthew chapter 13. And so I think it will be helpful for us to understand what the parables are, how they function, and what we ought to do with them before then we spend the next several weeks looking at the parables. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So we'll start out on the informed end, and then, Lord willing, we will understand the parables as we move on through. Let's look at God's Word this morning, Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, and then skipping to verses 34 and 35. Uh, to set the stage, let me look, let's uh, look at verses 1 through 3. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. 
And he told them many things in parables. Now, you'll recall we just finished Matthew 12 not long ago. And in Matthew 12, Jesus is having some uh, conflict with the Pharisees. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, Matthew says, happens on the same day. So he's left the house where he was teaching. And now he's uh, got a big crowd. So he goes out to the lake. And there's so many people, there's not a good place to go. So he has to get in a boat and push away from shore a little ways so that he can speak so that the people will hear. And that is where he gives these parables. Then verse 10. The disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them to you. It has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given for to the one who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your ears, for they see, and your... Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Matthew continues in verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And here he quotes Psalm 78 verse 2. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now this text today deals primarily with one question. Why the parables? Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables, the disciples ask. And there are three reasons, I think, why the parables that we can uh, glean from this passage today. First, the parables, Jesus speaks in parables to reveal and to conceal kingdom truths. To reveal and conceal kingdom truths. Now you're saying, Stephen, that that is a self-contradictory statement. And that may be true, but let us see that uh, that is in fact what Jesus says. And let's try to understand what is meant by that. Very clearly, Jesus says that there are mysteries of the kingdom of heaven that are intended to be revealed to some, specifically the disciples, but not to others, speaking generally of the crowd that is listening. Some people get to hear the mysteries of the kingdom. Some people do not. Verse 11, he says, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. Now, when, while many people, including the disciples, are hearing the parables, it's not just the twelve, but, but uh, large crowds that are following Jesus, it would seem here that only those who are closest to Jesus are the intended, effective audience. Only those who are closest to Jesus are the ones who are intended to understand what he means by these parables. They're not necessarily intended to be understood by everyone. Now, this is a hard thing to understand. It's a hard thing to comprehend. And I don't blame you if you're scratching your head about this, because I've scratched my head quite a bit this last week trying to understand what's going on here. But it is what Jesus says. Some will understand, some will not. So how then are we understand what Jesus is saying here? What, what are you saying? It's that some are meant to know the mysteries of the kingdom, and others will never understand them at all. That's plainly what it means. But recall what Jesus said, even in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. Just flip back one, chip, one page in your Bible and find that. 
At that time, says Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. That is the mysteries of the kingdom, the the, uh, truths of the kingdom. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Catch that. God has revealed kingdom truths to some people and hidden it from others. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. There in Matthew, here in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, which we saw just a few weeks ago, is this principle that unless someone has spiritual realities revealed to them by God, then there is no way that they will ever be received or believed. Unless someone has spiritual realities revealed to them by God, by the Holy Spirit of God, they will not be received or believed. The Son chooses, Jesus says himself, the Son chooses to whom to reveal the Father. And here Jesus affirms that, uh, again, in saying that his disciples are those who have been chosen to receive spiritual truths about the Father and the kingdom. The parables, then, are the means by which this information about the kingdom, these kingdom mysteries, are revealed. The parables are the, are the, the vehicle for teaching, for uh, communicating kingdom realities, spiritual realities. Now, these things are mysterious. Jesus calls them mysteries. The Greek word is mysterion, from which we get the word mystery. Some of your translations may say secrets. I think mystery is a better translation. That they are mysterious does not necessarily mean that God keeps them hidden away as some sort of secret knowledge that only special people receive. But they're mysterious because they are things that have been previously misunderstood, uh, misunderstood by Israel prior to Jesus' teaching, and that there are things that are difficult just generally to understand. Mysteries are things that are hard to understand, not impossible to understand, but hard. In his wisdom, Jesus chooses to use parables then, these stories that teach about kingdom truth to reveal these mysteries. This is why Matthew takes then and applies Psalm 78, 2 to Jesus in verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Matthew takes and applies Psalm 78.2 to Jesus because Jesus is delivering knowledge that has been previously hard to understand or unclear. And he, he makes it clear to those who are intended to receive it by means of the parables. So what sort of mysteries then are we talking about? What sort of uh, kingdom truths is Jesus revealing in the parables? Well, at least four different kinds that we'll see in Matthew chapter 13. And just in summary fashion, they are these. That faithful reception, the, the, the need for faithful reception of the gospel of the kingdom. That's one. Uh, He reveals mysteries about the final judgment and eternal destinies for those who are saved and those who are condemned. He reveals uh, kingdom mysteries about the true, the, the inestimable value of the kingdom, just how valuable the kingdom and the gospel is. He reveals truths about the fact that true wisdom is found in accepting what is heard in the parables and that true foolishness is found in rejecting what is found in the parables. Now, just as the parables have revealing and concealing abilities, they also have giving and taking abilities. Look at verse 12. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, having and not having in this context is not a matter of physical possessions or material prosperity. Jesus isn't saying, for the one who has a really nice car, he'll get an even nicer car. And the one who doesn't have anything, right? Or for the one who doesn't have a really nice car, he'll get a really nice car. And the one who has a really nice car, we're going to take it away and give it to somebody else. That's not what Jesus is saying. 
Rather, having and not having should be understood in terms of spiritual receptiveness to the things of God. Right? You either have spiritual receptiveness or you do not have it. In hearing the parables, those who have humble and receptive spirits shall receive the knowledge of God through the parables that will abound to eternal life. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, I praise you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise, but revealed them to little children, to those who are humble. For the one who then, uh, on the other hand, in spiritual pride, denies the truth of the parables or denies his need for the things of God, he shall not receive eternal life, far less even the pride that he has shall be removed so that even the one thing that he thought he had would be taken from him, and he would be shown to be truly spiritually bereft, spiritually bankrupt in the final judgment. So let's look at this again. For to the one who has, and let me add, spiritual discernment, a desire for spiritual things, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not spiritual discernment, desire for godly things, even what he has, his pride and his own understanding, even that will be taken away. This helps us to understand, then, I think, that, that the parables have giving and taking abilities. helps us to understand what is meant by revealing and concealing. That the parables both reveal and conceal kingdom truths. For those who are receptive to the truths of God, the parables will reveal more about what they are already pursuing. Okay? And for those who are opposed to the things of God, or even those who are just merely entertained by Jesus' good stories, the parables will, while conveying truth, will ultimately have no life-changing effect Because the hearts of those people uh, who are hearing them are unreceptive to the truths that are communicated. Ultimately, then, the parables reveal the hearts of those who are listening. Look at verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables, Jesus says, Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. This sort of ironic statement, right? Having eyes they do not see, having ears they do not hear. This ironic statement by Jesus demonstrates that physical sight and hearing have nothing to do with spiritual sight and hearing. This is often why uh, when I pray before I preach, I pray, God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to respond in faith and and repentance. Right? Not because we don't have eyes to see and don't have ears to hear and don't have hearts that beat and push blood through our bodies. but, But we need those things spiritually. We need to see spiritually. We need to hear spiritually. We need our hearts to beat with the heart of the Father. Very often in the Gospels, we have pictures of people who are physically well and healthy, especially uh, among the Pharisees. People who have eyes, who have ears, and who have much pride in their spiritual knowledge, who, though educated in the things of God, are blind to the work of God in Jesus right in front of them. And in the opposite way, on the other hand, it is the physically blind and uneducated who see the truth of Jesus' identity and of his work and who worship him for it. At least twice in the Gospel of Matthew alone, we have two sets of two blind men who cannot see that profess that Jesus is the son of David and ask for him to have mercy on them and to heal them. Why? Because even not having eyes to see, they have spiritual eyes to see what is true about who Jesus is and knowing that they respond the right way. The parables then show that those who think they get it really do not. And those who know that they have nothing to offer a holy and a perfect God who are relying upon him for all things are in fact the ones to whom the kingdom is revealed. Do you want to understand the kingdom of God today? Then humble yourself before the Father and ask him to reveal it to you. Stop assuming that you know that you know that you know and ask God, God, you reveal it to me. 
And ask yourself this morning, what does your own heart tell you today about how you hear and respond to God's word? The parables, just as the rest of the uh, content of Scripture, are God's word to us. And so how we will receive these and the truth that they communicate over the next several weeks will say a lot to us about the state of our own hearts. So ask yourself this morning, what does your own heart tell you about how you hear and respond to God's word in a general sense? Non-Christian friend, you who are here this morning, that you, you, you would say... And confidently so, that you have no relationship with Jesus. You're not trusting him for salvation, but by God's grace, you're here this morning and we're glad that you are. The parables, understand this, the parables and all of God's word are for you. Non-Christian friend, the parables are for you. But know that your response to them will affirm what in your heart you already know to be true. When you are, when the meaning of the parables is revealed to you, if you receive it with gladness and with faith in Jesus and the things that he is saying, that is revealing that your heart is already attuned to the things of God, that you are searching for those things. You want to know those things that are true. But if you hear the parables and you reject them, know that your rejection is revealing to you what the parables are revealing to you, what is already true of your heart, that you are already rejecting God and his work in your life. And whether you're seeking to know the truths of God, whether you're continually opposed to them, the parables will reveal that. But church member, Christian, the same is true for you. The same is true for you. And if you find yourself understanding the parables, hearing the parables, and then bucking at the truth that the parables display, it may be that your own heart has not yet truly been submitted to Jesus. It is possible to be in church every Sunday for 75 years and never to submit to Jesus as Lord. It is entirely possible to be entertained by his stories and by his teaching and to think that Jesus is a really good guy, even to believe that he died on the cross, but not to submit your heart to him and to the things that he is showing you about yourself and about the world around you. Ask Jesus today, ask the Lord today to make clear the nature of your heart in response to his word. So the parables reveal and conceal kingdom truths, but secondly, they also fulfill scripture. Why the parables, Jesus? To fulfill scripture. Verse 13, which we just read, leads right into the way in which scripture is revealed in the teaching of the parables. Verses 14 and 15 here are a quotation from Jesus of Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 and 10. This is what Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 says. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go and say to this people, speaking of Israel, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet of Isaiah, and saying it's fulfilled in him. So let's understand then what's going on in Isaiah chapter 6 so that we can fully or more better understand what Jesus is saying about it. Isaiah chapter 6, you may recall, verses 1 through 7, is Isaiah's vision of God in his royal throne room, right? There, the, the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. And you have the, the, the seraphim, the creatures that are around, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. In verse 8, Isaiah is called and commissioned by God to go and speak for God as a prophet, as a spokesperson for the Lord, to which Isaiah confidently accepts. Here I am, Lord, send me, he says. And then the call to Isaiah in verses 9 through 13 of Isaiah 6 is then to proclaim a message to the stubborn kingdom of Israel about the impending judgment that will come at the hands of the Assyrians and then after them, the Babylonians. 
Isaiah uh, uh, prophesied, was a prophet of God about some 700 years before Jesus, just prior to the Assyrian invasion. And his job is to essentially say to Israel, repent or the Lord will judge you. And God is also saying at the same time, as you tell them what they need, they will reject what they need, and I'm going to judge them anyway. So as to, to demonstrate that God's justice is always perfect, his judgment is always deserved. Isaiah's call, then, is more of a call to endure constant rejection of his message than anything else. The purpose of Isaiah's prophecy will not be to turn Israel to repentance, though the content of it does point them to repentance and call them to repent. But instead, the purpose of his prophecy will concretize and galvanize their unrepentance. While Isaiah's word is one of their need to turn to God and to seek his mercy, those who hear it in Israel will not receive it because they don't believe that they need it. Thus, the call to repent in Isaiah's day causes the willfully unrepentant to dig in their heels in their sin and in their sinful rejection of God. Isaiah's question then to the Lord, he says, How long, O Lord, how long do I have to do this to this stubborn people? elicits the revelation from God that Isaiah must prophesy until there's only a stump of Israel remaining. How long, O Lord? Till there's, till there's barely anything left, Isaiah. Till there's barely anything left. And yet it will be from this stump that a holy seed will send up a shoot and there will be new life in Israel. In this way, the godly minority of Israel will endure the same judgment as the unrepentant people of Israel. But the repentant will be preserved, and from them will come a holy seed, a Savior, Messiah. From this holy stump will spring forth a shoot right, that, will, that will save the people of Israel and ultimately the people of the world. So what then is the connection between Isaiah 6 and Matthew 13? Jesus says, Isaiah 6 is fulfilled in me as I teach the parables. Well, what is known from Isaiah is that uh, the, the fact that the vast... What is known from Isaiah is that, in fact, the vast majority of Israel does not repent. They don't turn to God. They experience judgment at the hands of the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians. Their ears are deafened and their eyes are blinded by the prophecy that should lead them to repentance. And so then Jesus here in Matthew 13 is indicating that this prophecy will find its fulfillment not in Isaiah's day, though it did in one sense, but it will find its perfect fulfillment in Jesus' own day. And that through the parables that he tells The kingdom truths declared in the parables will soften the hearts of the spiritually humble and they will simultaneously harden the hearts of the spiritually proud in the same manner that Pharaoh's heart was hardened and the hearts of Israel were calcified at the declaration of God through Moses and the prophets. Pharaoh had Moses and Aaron proclaiming the word of the Lord to him and he did not believe in response. His his heart was not softened. It was it was hardened. Same thing with Israel. What will be the fate of those who are hearing Jesus teach? As Jesus teaches in parables, the images of the parables throughout the course of the Gospels get clearer and clearer and clearer. Even until up in Matthew 21, 45, we read, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. The parables of Jesus throughout the Gospels do not cause repentance in the hearts of the recalcitrant. They don't cause people to turn people who are opposed to God to turn to God. They only further unrepentance. An unrepentance that will ultimately lead them to crucify Jesus. The high priests heard the parables. They knew the parables were about them and what they were going to do to Jesus. 
And did they turn and repent and, and stop their wickedness? No. They plowed on full bore ahead in the, in the same manner, in the same path that they had already been doing. Hearing parables that pointed out their sinfulness and that they, in fact, were going to kill Jesus. And understanding that, that those parables were about them, the high priest said, enough of this guy. We've got to get rid of him. So they crucify him, but they crucify him so that scripture might be fulfilled in his death for our sins. So even in their unrepentance, the high priest can't help but do what they have already been intended to do. And what scripture said would and must happen. So then in verses 34 and 35, Matthew interprets Psalm 78, 3 to have its fullest meaning in Jesus. All these things Jesus said to crowds in parables. He said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Psalm 78, verse 2 has its perfect picture, its perfect concrete realization in Jesus as he is proclaiming these truths that are that are difficult to understand or previously misunderstood to a people who some will hear, but the vast majority will hear and will not respond in repentance and in obedience. Church, this morning, ask yourself this question. Have you seen and understood Jesus this way? If the parables and the telling of the parables serve to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament, do you understand him that way? As the promised Savior and Son of God who gives a face and a name to the promises of the Old Testament. See here in Matthew 13 that Jesus is not disconnected from your Old Testament. But that the Old Testament stands to point us to Jesus. So then church, let me encourage you this week. Read your Old Testament. Read it. It's God's word. And it's about Jesus. It's pointing us to Jesus. Read your Old Testament and revel in the signs that point you to the Savior. We who stand on this side of the, of the resurrection, knowing just who Christ is, can go back even further to see what God was doing in ancient times, preparing Israel for a Savior. And we can see the signs, we can see God's work, we can glorify Him for it, and we can revel in the fact that our God is faithful to the promises He gives to His people. The parables reveal and conceal. The parables fulfill Scripture. But the third purpose of the parables is to bless the receptive. Verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. So though the parables will remove the proud from their man-made perches, they will exalt and bless the humble and receptive at the very same time. The parables in this way are very much a two-edged sword. They do two things at the same time. They cut two different directions. Here in verses 16 and 17, we see that the eyes and the ears of the disciples are blessed because they have spiritual sight and spiritual hearing that is not dulled by the parables, but sharpened by them. They understand the things of God better through the parables. Moreover, they are the recipients of and the witnesses to the things that many righteous men and prophets of old longed to see and looked forward to, but never were able to enjoy. Among these righteous men and prophets, we might count these, Abraham. Abraham, who in Genesis 15, 5 and 6, God says to him, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Abraham said to, uh, he said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. 
Abram, a righteous man because of his faith and his trust in the Lord, that the Lord would bring offspring, specific offspring to Abraham. He trusts the Lord and his plan to bring him offspring. The offspring that we understand is ultimately Jesus of Nazareth, the savior of the world. Though Abraham did not see Jesus face to face in his own life, he trusted that God would be faithful. We could count among these righteous men and prophets who looked forward to the fulfillment of this prophecy. We could count among them Moses, who in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18 says to the people of Israel, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him. You shall listen just as you desired of the Lord, your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. When you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord, my God, or see his great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. We're told at the end of Deuteronomy, there's never another man in the history of Israel that was ever quite like Moses. Until we get to the New Testament and we get to Jesus and we see a prophet like Moses with words from the Lord that the people must listen to. Moses in his day knew there was one coming like him, greater than him who would reveal things to the people that they needed to hear. He did not see Jesus face to face in his lifetime, but he looked forward to God fulfilling that promise. David in 2 Samuel 7, 10 through 12, where, where God makes his covenant with David. God says this to David, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now we know that David's son Solomon is the one that, who directly precedes him as, or, or succeeds him as king. But his kingdom does not last. After Solomon's death, the kingdom is split in two. It's then taken uh, in captivity by Assyria and then Babylon. Uh, and the people of Israel are looking for a, a king who will restore them uh, to, to the state like that of David uh, for the rest of their history up until Jesus comes. Jesus comes as the king, the son of David. As Matthew says in the beginning of his gospel, Jesus, the son of David, to be the king who will restore to his people what they had before, but so much more better. Not that they would have a geopolitical or geographical uh, kingdom in which to live forever, but that they would have a new heavens and a new earth, an eternal resting place forever, and that he would govern them in justice and in righteousness. David looked forward to that king, though he never saw him face to face. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, we've already looked at that today, looking forward to a, a holy uh, stump from which a shoot would come to save Israel. We won't have time to look at it today, but the prophet Zechariah, pretty much all of Zechariah's um, prophecy, but especially chapters 9 through 14 of that book, point to a day when a Savior will come who will fulfill all of the promises that God had given. So then see what Jesus says here in verses 16 and 17. He is, just, he is saying that the disciples are now front row observers to the person and the events that their ancestors had hoped for and had only seen dimly through the lens of prophetic vision. That which was a fuzzy image on the horizon to Moses and to David and the prophets is flesh and bone and on display before the disciples and through God's word to us as well today. 
to hear the parables and receive the kingdom truths that they teach with gladness and humility and repentance is to be blessed because we are able to see and able to hear the very fulfillment of Old Testament promises in the person and work of Jesus. Ask yourself today then this question. Do you know the blessing of having seen and heard Jesus in truth? Do you know that blessing? The word blessed means simply happy. Can you count your eyes and your ears as happy for having seen and heard the truth of who Jesus is? Christian, if you struggle today with having joy in your salvation, having joy in your walk with Jesus because the circumstances of life have made it difficult, because you're struggling with illness or financial distress or there's conflict in your family, if you're struggling to have joy to be happy in salvation, Remind yourself today that you have seen and heard and have living within you the very person that Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Zechariah looked forward to but never knew until they saw him in their death. You are blessed to have seen and heard and know Jesus in this life and forever in eternity. You are blessed if you have seen him and heard him and trusted him. Count yourself blessed. See your blessing Revel in the blessing of knowing Jesus as you, as you trudge through difficulty in this life. May the glory of God and the joy of your salvation be what carries you through illness and financial discomfort and family difficulty. Trust Jesus. Be blessed. Revel in the blessing of knowing that you know the one who has met your greatest need, which is the forgiveness of your sins and right relationship with your, with your creator. So why the parables? Because they reveal and conceal kingdom truths, because they fulfill scripture and they bless the receptive. That's why Jesus teaches in them. So then briefly, let's talk about what the parables are and what they are not. What are the parables and what are they not? First, the parables are narrative analogies that teach kingdom realities. Narrative analogies that teach kingdom realities. The simplest way to speak of the parables are, is as this, as a narrative analogy, a storied analogy, a storied comparison. Some might would say allegory. Through stories filled with symbolic and significant imagery, Jesus teaches kingdom realities through the parables. Some of them are longer. Think of the prodigal son, the good Samaritan. Longer parables. While others are very short, which we'll see at the end of Matthew chapter 13. Like the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, the fisherman's dragnet. But in each parable, there is taught at least one main point. Sometimes up to three per uh, a modern scholar who would understand it that way. Now normally, the longer the parable uh, and the more characters that are involved, the more points there will be to be made. Usually there's a point for each character that is involved. So, for instance, in the uh, parable of the prodigal son, you have the father, you have the prodigal son, and then you have the son that stays home that's just in a bad mood all the time. And there's a separate point to be made from each of those. However, even when or if there are three points to be made in a parable, they're not discontinuous or incongruous with one another. Rather, the three fit together uh, like three sides of a triangle to give a complete image or a complete truth that is being taught in the parable, okay? So, they're narrative analogies that teach kingdom realities. Secondly, they are one of Jesus' preferred methods of teaching kingdom realities, of teaching kingdom truths. And as one of his preferred methods to teach the crowds and the disciples, the parables must then be taken with authoritative force. 
That is to say, these are the word of God. They are authoritative. We need to listen to them. Their main point should be sought after in truth. And that main point or main points should be applied to the lives of the reader, to the listener. So as we read the parables, we should seek to understand them and to apply them, understand them rightly and apply them appropriately in our lives. That's what the parables are. Now let's talk about what the parables are not. The parables are not merely fables. Fables, the most popular of which come by way of the ancient Grecian Aesop, right? The, the fox and the grapes, the tortoise and the hare, uh, the bee and the beekeepers. You've never heard of that one, so you're going to go and Google it later. The parable, the, the fables, specifically those of, of Aesop, and there are others throughout literary history, he just happens to be the most uh, prolific fable writer, are entirely fictitious stories that often feature, almost always feature, mythical creatures and talking animals meant to convey a particular moral point. Right? Slow and steady wins the race. Things are not always what they appear. Parables, on the other hand, are almost always quite realistic There aren't talking animals in the parables. Uh, There aren't mythical figures in the parables. And they're meant uh, not to simply teach the right thing to do or to teach some sort of moral lesson, but to impart knowledge of spiritual realities and divine truths. You see the difference there? Fables tell you good things to do sometimes. Parables tell you this is the word of the Lord. Fables say these are good things to do. Jesus' parables say this is God's word. This is the truth of his kingdom. Listen to it and obey. Be changed by it. The parables are not merely fables. Secondly, the parables are not to be allegorized. Now, I know that I said that the parables are a form of allegory, but they're not to be allegorized. And so we're playing a semantic game, so let me define the parameters of this game. The parables, though they are narrative analogies, they are allegory, are not to be allegorized. And what I mean by that is this, that while the parables are symbolic narratives, allegorical, not every detail of the parables has a secondary or deeper spiritual meaning. Sometimes a pig and slop are just pig and slop. Okay? Sometimes a, 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 a bag of money is just a bag of money. All right? And these details serve to give narrative depth and color in order to give them a greater realistic effect. Right? Just like we, we tell stories, we add details that don't mean anything, but just to make it a, 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 a more compelling story. So Jesus does in the parables. So when you read the parables, don't look at every single detail and try to make something out of it. Now, some have made this mistake, uh, I think, most popularly with the parable of the Good Samaritan. So that the man who's beaten on the roadside is the sinner who's been beaten up by, uh, by his sin and by Satan. And the ones that are passing by and ignoring him are the... Um, or Satan and his minions who are trying to keep the man down. The, the Samaritan who comes by to rescue the guy is, of course, Jesus. And he puts him on the donkey, which is the gospel, and takes him to the inn, which is the church, where the innkeeper, who is the apostle Paul, takes care of this guy. So see, we can go into all, we can try to associate realities with uh, all the details of a parable so, so in such a way as to make the parable seem completely, just co- completely mis- not understandable. Make, make a word out of that, okay? That makes sense. So, so in such a way as to confuse ourselves more than to make it clear. Or instead the point of the, of the Good Samaritan, which in the Gospel of Luke, if the Lord allows that we ever get that far, we'll find that the point of the Good Samaritan is to love your neighbor as yourself. And how do you love your neighbor as yourself? Uh, in the way that a Samaritan would, would care for a Jew who's beaten up on the side of the road. So much so that he cares for him and even in his recovery out of his own pocket. 
Okay, so don't allegorize the parables. Don't try to make something out of every little tiny detail in the parables. So they're not merely fables. They're not to be allegorized. Third and finally, they are not open to interpretation. They're not open to interpretation. There are, in the parables, static, that is, unchanging, never-changing truths that are to be understood the same way today as they were from Jesus to the crowds and the disciples 2,000 years ago when they were delivered. The truths of the parables do not change. The point of the parables is unchanging. You don't get to decide what the parable of the sower uh, describes or what it's really about. In fact, Jesus gives us instruction in verses 18 through 23 as to exactly what the parable of the sower is about. So deal with that. But when it comes to the other parables that don't have explicit explanation from Jesus, you don't get to decide on your own apart from the history of the church, which is sought to understand them rightly, and the testimony of Scripture, which helps us to understand the parables that are there as well. Okay, you don't get to do it on your own. This is God's word, and we don't play with it like we would a, 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 a ball on the beach, okay? We, we handle it carefully, and we handle it rightly, because if we miss the truth that God's word is saying, is communicating, we make a shipwreck of our faith, of our lives, and we destroy the gospel in the process. So the parables are not open to interpretation. Now, that does not mean they're not to be interpreted. We do seek to interpret them, but we interpret them rightly and in, consist- with consist- in consistency with the rest of the testimony of Scripture. Now, on the other hand, application of the parables may vary from person to person or congregation to congregation based upon the spiritual state or spiritual maturity of that person or congregation, their cultural context, or the life situation of those who are hearing it. The truths never change, but sometimes the application does. So, for instance, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the point for those who are listening to Jesus might be, gosh, I'm, I, really, I, need to, I need to love somebody who is from a different nationality than me. I need to literally love my enemy. Or for you, it might be a little bit different. Maybe you just need to love a family member who's treated you wrong. right? Or, or maybe you need to learn to love the community that you're in and to care for them in a, in a different, more Christ-like way. So the application may vary, but the truth never change. So that's what the parables are and what they are not. Now, briefly, what do we do with the parables? What do we do with them? First, we understand their elements. Understand their elements. This is head-level application here, okay? By this, we're asking the questions, what do I need to know about the kingdom of heaven? Or what is Jesus instructing through this parable? We need to understand the symbols that are there and what they represent and what the parables mean. From this, we ask questions like, what is the kingdom of God like? Who may enter the kingdom? How does a kingdom citizen live or act? We're understanding, first with our minds, the parables. Secondly, we we do well to do this in this order. Understand it mentally. Then secondly, internalize their message. We apply it to our hearts. Internalize their message. Here we are asked, so in the first when, when we're understanding the elements, we're asking, what does this mean? Secondly, we're asking, as we internalize their message, what does this mean to me? Who am I in relation to the point of this parable? Am I receptive to Christ's kingdom? Am I truly a follower of Jesus? We might ask the question, where does my life as a follower of Jesus differ from what the parables are teaching? We may ask ourselves, and we do well to ask ourselves, do I really want God to change the way I feel? about those areas where my life contradicts the parables. 
do I really want God to change me through the parables? And if your answer is no, then I would refer you back to the first question. Am I receptive to Christ's kingdom? Am I truly a follower of Jesus? So we understand their elements. Then we internalize their message. And third and finally, we live out their implications. So head, heart, hands. Understand with your head, apply it to your heart, live it out with your hands. And we live out their implications. So at this level of application, we ask these questions. What do I need to do to live out the kingdom truths of the parables? What do I need to do? Stephen Baum in 2017, what do I need to do to live out the implications of this parable? Do I need to repent of sins and seek forgiveness? Probably. Do I need to trust Jesus for the first time? For some of you, maybe. Do I need to start doing something that kingdom citizens do? Like sharing the gospel, serving others, loving the unloved or the unlovable, rejoicing in the salvation of of the lost. Do I need to start doing those things? Or do I need to stop doing something that kingdom citizens do not do? Like ignoring the poor and the needy, mistreating persons of other races, cultures, nationalities. Do I need to stop walking in unrepentant sin? Do I need to stop ignoring the conviction of the sin in my life? Do I need to stop keeping the gospel, hoarding the gospel for myself, not sharing it with others? How do I live out the implications of the parables in my life? So head, heart, hands, always in that order, okay? Don't get that backwards. Head, heart, hands. And as we work through the parables over the next several weeks, we're going to approach them that way. We're going to understand what Jesus is saying. We're going to apply them to our lives. And then as we leave each Sunday, we're going to look for ways to live those things out. So now in final application to all of this, what we've been saying this morning. My question to us is this. What is your response then this morning to hearing the word of God? What's your response? Not just today, but every day. The parables that we find in scripture certainly are the word of God. And Jesus says himself that their purpose is to divide. That is to separate between true believers and followers of Jesus. And on the other hand, those who reject him. That's the purpose of the parables. And so when then you approach God's word this week or sit under it to sit, sit to hear it preached or taught to you every week, either in worship here together or in your, uh, your small group, your Bible study classes, what is your reaction? What is your response to God's word? Is it appreciation for the literary elements and contours of the passage? Is your response admiration and respect for the charisma of a particular preacher or teacher? Maybe you enjoy the nostalgia of reading the scriptures and the memories that they bring to mind of faithful parents or grandparents who would read the stories of the Bible to you. But I would hope that and I would even go so far as to implore you to go beyond these superficial responses to scripture. And in this case, the parables go deeper. They're more than just good literature. They're more than just entertaining stories. These are the word of God from the mouth of his son. The parables is the, are the word of God, proclaiming truths about God and us and Jesus and salvation. The parables show us pictures of a God who has created the world out of a desire to communicate his excellencies and perfection with beings, you and I, who are capable of understanding and enjoying his goodness. But we have spurned God's goodness. We have rejected his good care for us. We have, as the Bible says, sinned against him. And we've separated ourselves from being able to know and to love and to worship him the way that he's designed us to. God, who is perfect and perfectly good and holy, is right. He is just to judge us for our sin. And the adequate judgment for our sin, as scripture tells us, is death. 
and eternal separation from God. That's a spiritual reality for every one of us in this room. But while all of us deserve that, we deserve death and eternal separation from God. He, in his love for us, his creation, has sent us Jesus, his son, to be born of a virgin who is fully God and fully man, lived a life without sin, the life you can't ever hope to live, the life I can't ever hope to live. It's a life we're intended to live and to know, and we have failed at it miserably, but Jesus succeeded perfectly. And though he didn't deserve to die because he had no sin, he was still all the same executed on a cross in your place and mine as a substitute for us. There he took on himself the full punishment that each and every one of us deserves for our sin. And he died. But three days later, he was raised from the dead, demonstrating his victory over sin and death. So that by turning from our sin, the thing that we have done to deserve punishment for it, by turning away from it and trusting in Jesus for our salvation, in his death on the cross in our place, in his resurrection from the dead for new life for us, we can be forgiven and reconciled with God and enjoy His uh, enjoy life forever in his presence. That is the point, friends, of all of the scriptures. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And it's the very news that divides between believers and unbelievers every single day. That good news cuts like a hot knife through butter. It divides all the time. To merely hear God's word and appreciate it for its literary mastery is not sufficient to save you. It's not sufficient to forgive your sins. Friends, much more. We must believe these words. Rest our lives on these words and the truths that are in them and in the Savior that they point us to. to. Now, in college, I was an English major, primarily because I couldn't do anything else. But I like to read books and uh, watch films and uh, apparently write papers. As an English major, I read a lot of books, old books, new books, plays, Poems, some of them I love uh, dearly and, and, and appreciate and go back to often. In fact, even before college, my favorite book of all time, if you're going to ask me, is uh, Ender's Game. And uh, it's a kind of a sci-fi, uh, futuristic fantasy sort of book. Uh, film was made of it not long ago. Great book. Go buy it and read it today. Uh, I first read Ender's Game in sixth grade, and I've probably read it a dozen times since then. Just love that book. Sits on my shelf, and, and uh, it's been several years since I've read it, but, but I always think of it fondly. It's a book I love. Some of Shakespeare's plays I really enjoyed once I understood what he was saying. Other th- just, other, just films that we watched. Uh, I was exposed to Sidney Poitier films uh, while I was in college and just came to, underst- came to a great appreciation for him as an individual, the things he had to go through in his own life, uh, being, a, being an African-American actor in a time when there hardly were any. And, the, and, and not just that he was one, but that he was amazing, just an amazing. And just you grow an appreciation for that, for the stories that are told. Yet at the same time, as much as I loved those stories and wrote about them, there were not a one of them that called me to place my faith in their author. There were not a one of them that called me to rest my life on the truths of the characters that are in those stories. I read the books, watched the films, enjoyed them. I wrote an essay and I moved on to the next class. Not so with the Bible. Church, don't look today or any day 
at God's word and walk away without considering whether you are seeking to understand it and to know it. And more than that, to be changed by it as it leads you to faith in Jesus. Don't let your scripture reading during the week, your time spent in reading God's word and in prayer, don't let it just be a pastime. Don't let it just be a thing that your kids see that you do, but don't ever understand why. Let it be the very thing, the very habit that changes your life daily. Not just because you're reading good stories or reading great literature, but because you're encountering the God of the universe who has created you through its words and are submitting your life to him. The Bible's so much better than Ender's Game. The Bible's so much better than any Sidney Poitier film. And it is worthy of our acceptance. It's worthy of our belief. In fact, not believing it will, will render you separated from God for eternity. So trust it today. Trust it today. And as we work through the parables over the next several weeks, learn to understand them, to internalize their message, and to live out their implications in your life. Let's encourage one another to do that. Here in a moment, Danny and the... Uh, Praise team, we're going to lead us in a time of response. And there are several ways to respond to God's word this morning. First, you may need to come to and trust Jesus for the first time today. You may understand and know, be aware of your sin and separation from God. And you want to be right with him. You want to give your life to this savior that the Bible tells us about. You come and talk with me today. Let's talk about how to be right with God, how to receive Jesus as Lord, and how to walk in obedience and repentance. Maybe today... Uh, you feel that God is calling you to join your life to the life of this local church. The local church is a, is a physical representation of all of God's redeemed throughout, throughout history and time. It is a family of faith that you can join your life to, that you can exercise your spiritual gifts in, that you can spurn one another along and be held accountable to walk in repentance and faith uh, with these other people. Maybe you would like to join our church today and you'd like to come and talk with me about the details of that. Brother, sister, maybe God's working in your heart today and he's calling you to a life of ministry. He's calling you to a life of, of teaching God's word to people so that they might understand it, might be convicted by it, might be shown the truth of who Jesus is and give their lives to it. Maybe God's calling you to that today, and you don't know what that means. Maybe God's calling you to be a pastor or a youth pastor or, or, or one who leads in worship. Maybe God's calling you to give your life on the mission field. I don't know, but maybe God's doing something in your heart and your life, and you want to make that known. You can come make that known to me today or let somebody know during the week. For heaven's sake, don't keep that to yourself. Let your faith family know so we can come alongside you. However you need to respond this morning, you respond that way. Be faithful to what God is doing in your heart. Maybe you just need to kneel at your seat and pray and ask God to give you better insight into your own heart, to your own life, what you're doing with his word on a daily basis. But don't leave here today without responding to God this morning. Let's pray.